What a joy to be with you today on this special season kickoff event. Whether you call City Church home or whether this is the first time you're stepping through our doors, we are so glad you are here. As many of you know, it's a new season today. Some of you are wearing the jerseys. There it is. There it is. That's actually what I'm referring to. Many people are wondering if Kevin O'Connell can sustain the impressive record from his first year last season as head coach. Last year, there was a fair bit of um, curiosity and anticipation about his arrival. How will it impact the Vikings with him at the helm? What kind of players is he going to be able to recruit? And most importantly, will he be able to lead us in beating the Green Bay Packers? It is a fair question to ask. Anytime there's a change in leadership in an organization or on a team, there's always a bit of waiting to see what the change will bring. Now, I'm going to dramatically reduce the level of influence here. <laughs> But even I have been asked similar kinds of questions as I step into this new role. I live just blocks away, and so I walk the neighborhood often, and so sometimes when people find out I'm the new senior pastor, they say, what kind of church is City Church? And What kind of people go there? And one of my favorites, can I still come to your church even if I don't go every week? <laughs> the answer, of course, is yes. We would love to have you. And as I hope you'll see today, this is an open invitation. So as I anticipated today, I thought what might be most helpful is to lay out the kind of person we're looking for at City Church or the kind of church we want to be in this community, the kind of posture we want to have with our neighbors. And that's actually pretty easy for me to answer, because as Mark just laid out so well, we take our cues from Jesus. There are two stories that give us a really good picture of what Jesus is like. They're found in the book of John in the New Testament, which is one of the biographies written about Jesus by eyewitnesses. The stories uh, are back-to-back, -back, and they give us such a good sense of who Jesus is recruiting for his team and how he interacts with people who are interested in matters of faith. And that's pretty important, because in my years of pastoral ministry, I found people have so many misperceptions about the kind of person God is interested in whether from previous painful experiences at church or from bad teaching or simply misunderstanding, I found people either assume they have no need for church or faith or more sadly, no chance at church or faith. They're either uninterested or they feel unwanted. I think of a woman we'll call Sonia. She's smart, accomplished at the top of her field. She's got a supportive husband, two great kids, excellent health. She was raised in a faith tradition, but she doesn't really see much use for it now. Life is good. What could she possibly need that religion has to offer? Thing is, there are moments from time to time when she feels like something is missing. Could there really be more to life than this? Or I think of another friend, we'll call Samantha. She's had a hard life. If eyes are the window to the soul, hers are reservoirs of trauma and tragedy. A lot was beyond her control, but it, 
If she were honest, she'd be the first to admit that some of it was the result of her own poor decisions that contributed to her pain. And as a result, she doesn't think God would be very interested in her. It's a nice thought, if only it were true. People who wouldn't identify as Christian usually tend towards one of these extremes. Either they're too good to need God, life is fine, what's the value add? Or they feel they're too bad to be of interest to God. They're disqualified for bad behavior. And today, I hope to clarify both of these misperceptions because the good news is that Jesus extends an open invitation to all. Let's look now at each of these two stories in turn. They're lengthy stories, so we'll look just at excerpts of the book of John, chapter 3 and chapter 4. The words will be on the screen for you. These may be familiar stories. One is about a man named Nicodemus, and the other is about a Samaritan woman who's drawing water from a well. With each one, we'll see how we'll learn from Jesus' interaction with the individual since City Church's aim is to emulate his posture. Are you with me? Are you with me? Story number one, Nicodemus. John chapter three, verse one. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Okay, the Pharisees were the most devout religious people of the day. They're like super religious. But Nicodemus isn't just in the club. He's on the ruling council, the highest Jewish court in the city of Jerusalem, which is the epicenter of religious affairs in the first century, okay? So this guy is in predominant leadership role. He's got influence. People know who he is when he walks around the city. They listen when he talks. And because of that, he's got a reputation to uphold. Nicodemus has been exposed to Jesus' teaching. He's even observed a few miracles, and he's intrigued. He's not convinced, but he's curious. So what does he do? Verse 2, he came to Jesus at night. <laughs> he comes under cover of darkness because he doesn't want to go public yet. He doesn't even want to be seen with Jesus. Jesus is raising eyebrows in the community. Nicodemus isn't sure he wants to be associated with that. Anybody relate to that? But his curiosity gets the better of him. And so he initiates conversation with Jesus, just kind of like an opener, and let's see where it goes. Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. And Jesus, seeing right to the heart of the matter, responds, no one can see or enter the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Nicodemus mistakes this for a literal or physical birth. And Jesus clarifies he means actually a spiritual one. How can this be? Nicodemus asks. And Jesus responds by taking Nicodemus's question seriously. And then he spends the next several verses trying to answer it in a way that will make sense to Nicodemus in particular, given his background and education. He concludes by saying some of the most familiar words in the Bible often found on signs at football games. John's 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now that phrase eternal life is unfortunately misunderstood because it's often thought to referring only to life after we die, seeing loved ones who have passed away, which is nice, 
But frankly, for most young, healthy, active people like ourselves, isn't all that appealing. But in fact, this phrase gets used a lot in the book of John, and it has a much deeper, richer meaning. Yes, it includes the idea of life as eternal in duration, as in it will not end, quantity. But it also includes the idea of quality. Think about it. Unending life isn't a really good thing unless it's a good life, right? The writer is saying that this eternal life starts now. It's invitation into a life of peace and joy and love and goodness. It's life as it was meant to be lived. Later on, Jesus will say it like this, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full, meaning deep and lasting life, a life with purpose and meaning, a life where even though we face challenges, we do not face them alone or without hope. That's the invitation to eternal life Jesus is offering. If I'm Nicodemus, my only thought is, yes, please. And the crazy thing about this is that it's ours for the taking. It's available to any who believe in Jesus, for God so loved the world that he gave, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have this kind of life. That believes in is more than just intellectual awareness. It means trusting in him, choosing to follow him, that his way is the best way and following as best we can. Now, this may be hard for our 21st century ears to understand, but this claim messes with Nicodemus's categories. As a devout Jewish leader, everything in his background tells him that only people who meet certain requirements of ethnicity or culture can be God's people. So it's sketchy, even a bit scandalous, when Jesus does away with those requirements. How can God be making such an amazing gift of life accessible to all? The next verse gives the answer. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Picture a sinking ship on a storm with people on board being tossed into the water who are drowning. I just have this image and I feel like most people think that God is kind of off to the side on the boat, hands on his hips condemning. I mean, you guys really should have done a safety check before you got on board. Didn't anyone check the weather forecast here? But that is not the kind of God Jesus reveals here. He's not off to the side condemning. He's jumping into the water himself, saving. If only the church would act more like the God we follow. Southwest Minneapolis, God is not out to judge you. He loves you. He wants what's best for you. He created you. He knows how best to live, and he wants us to experience that life now. And here's what I love about this story. That's where it ends. It doesn't get all wrapped up in a tight little bow. Nicodemus does show up later in the gospel record, and the way he does, many scholars believe he's eventually come to faith in Jesus. But that's not where this interaction ends. There's much more ambiguity here. This conversation has challenged Nicodemus' worldview, and he goes away mulling it over. This is going to take some time to think about. 
This is a change in his worldview. And Jesus, God bless him, is apparently very patient with the process. He doesn't anxiously try to force this guy to be somewhere he isn't. He isn't like a salesman trying to close the deal. He lets Nicodemus be where he is and wrestle with his questions. And here's what I want us to see from this interaction Jesus has with Nicodemus. Sincere question askers are safe with Jesus. There's two parts to this. First, Jesus is not afraid of your questions. Jesus does not berate Nicodemus in this conversation. Contrary to how some Christian groups might respond, he doesn't say, what's with all the questions? Just have faith. No, Jesus knows that what he's saying challenges Nicodemus's worldview. He's not put off by Nicodemus's question. He engages in it with rigorous dialogue and listening. I know a lot of churches act as if our brains should get checked at the door because we're people of faith, but that's not what Jesus was about. Jesus had a brain and he is not afraid of yours. In fact, he wants us to use our brains to think about these things. Since City Church seeks to pattern ourselves after Jesus' own behavior, it is our deep desire to be a place where genuine inquiry is not only permitted, but is actually celebrated. We want this to be a place in worship, in Sunday morning communities, in small groups, in Alpha, where your questions are met with respect and honor and listening. Which brings me to my second point on this. Jesus is very patient with the process. He is not on a time crunch here. He is not forcing people to get to a place they aren't yet comfortable with. He's too respectful of human agency for that kind of manipulation and coercion. If you are a nighttime seeker, and some of you may be, VPs at Fortune 500 companies, influential leaders in the Twin Cities, scientists who don't want a bad rep, let me assure you, genuine seekers are safe with Jesus. And we hope you feel safe with us as well. It is our hope that your questions will be taken seriously and engaged with thoughtfully. And you have permission to show up for the service, sit in the back, scoot out during the last song so you don't have to talk to anyone for as long as you want. There is no expiration date on the trial period here. And there is certainly no forcing Jesus always honored the freedom of every person he encountered, and we aim to do the same. Sincere question askers are safe with Jesus. That's what the first story teaches us. Now, for a bit of contrast, story number two, a Samaritan woman. John chapter 4 reveals another crucial conversation Jesus has with someone, and the two couldn't be any more different. This is no high-power, high-profile Nicodemus at night. This is a Samaritan woman. She doesn't even get a name in the narrative. Drawing water from a well at high noon whose interaction with Jesus takes a very unexpected turn. It's lengthy, so I'll summarize a bit using excerpts starting from John chapter 4, verse 3. Jesus left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by a well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman, 
We'll come back to that phrase. Came to draw water. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with or share dishes with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw from and the well is deep. Where can I get this living water? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will spring up into a well of water in eternal life. Now, before we look at Jesus' interaction, we have to understand how socially inappropriate this is. Samaritan woman doesn't mean much to us, but in the first century, when this exchange took place, that was a loaded term. Loaded because Jewish people, including Jesus and his disciples, just plain did not associate with Samaritans. Long-standing animosity existed between the two ethnic groups. They didn't go to the other side of the tracks. Generally speaking, Jewish people would take the long way around Samaritan country rather than walking through it. So when the passage says he had to go through Samaria, it is not mean geographically or culturally speaking. <laughs> Furthermore, in the culture and time period in which this story takes place, women were not permitted to speak publicly with men and certainly not with rabbis. We're told explicitly in verse 8, the only reason Jesus can have this conversation without the disciples freaking out is because he sent them on a grocery errand. Later on, verse 27 says, just then the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking to a woman, but no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking to her? They're not going to correct their boss in public, but they're confused, sensing the awkwardness. And because as we'll see, she's gotten what she needed. She drops her pail and runs away. What I want us to see is that this person has two strikes against her, her ethnicity and her gender. And one thing is clear right at the start. Jesus is breaking ethnic and cultural barriers long before we had centers for diversity and inclusion. Not only is this woman shocked by Jesus unexpectedly initiating conversation with her, she is also stunned that he offers her what he offered Nicodemus. See that same phrase, eternal life. Only this time, since it's hot and high noon and they're beside a well, he calls it living water. Like Nicodemus, we see from verse 11, she mistakes this for meaning physical water, but Jesus clarifies the water he gives people will become a spring of water welling up for eternal life. Water from a stagnant well or cistern in the first century was great, but it was finite. It needed to be replenished. How about fresh, bubbling springs of water overflowing? Parched physically, and as we'll see metaphorically as well, she's open. She's interested. Verse 15, sir, give me this water so I don't have to get thirsty and keep coming here. He told her, go. Call your husband and come back. Awkward silence. I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. And the fact is you have had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. 
Now, why'd you have to go there, Jesus? We were having a nice conversation. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But first, let's talk the five plus one husbands. It's interesting. We aren't told her backstory or the reason for her serial relationships. Was she a widow or was she divorced? Did she have some tough breaks in life or was she immoral? It's not clear. What is clear is that this is a woman who knows pain. She's been wounded, and this explains why she's here at noon when the sun is hottest, when women in the first century generally hauled water jaws in the morning or evening when it was cooler. This town isn't that big. If she's on her sixth man, nearly every woman in the coming to the well has had a sister or cousin or friend who knew this woman's past, broken by a hard life. She's all dried up. Anybody relate to that? To be without hope or without help? To feel beaten down by the hand life has dealt you or marginalized by significant losses or past mistakes? Maybe you have experienced significant loss in life. Maybe you know what it's like to wake up and be in a place you never thought you'd be in. A diagnosis, a DUI, the divorce papers being finalized. When we are parched and dried up, thirst-quenching water is pretty enticing. And Jesus, knowing all the complicated factors of her story, only goes there about the husbands not to pour salt in her wounds but rather to assure her that this offer of life is still good despite her past. He doesn't want her to have to wonder later whether Jesus might rescind or retract the offer if he only knew the real her. Jesus addresses the most intimate, humiliating aspects of her life so that she knows she's not disqualified. Unlike Nicodemus, she's instantly converted. She drops her water jar, a literary stroke of genius. She's found the living water. Who needs pails anymore? And runs sharing this good news with everyone. Verses 28 to 29. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? If the story of Nicodemus teaches us that intellectually curious, religious, powerful people are safe with Jesus, the story of the Samaritan woman teaches us so are irreligious people with a past, people with baggage or wounds, people who are dried up, people who assume they're disqualified because of their track record. For anybody out there without hope or who feels beyond help, this story shows us God is gratuitous in his generosity. He knows everything about us and still offers us the living water that alone satisfies. Nicodemus had enough confidence to seek Jesus out, but this woman only found the living water because Jesus had to go through Samaria. He is not merely open to accepting her. He is actively seeking her out. He wants her to experience real life and healing and freedom and restoration to her community. So he defies the cultural norms and initiates this life-changing conversation. If you read to the end of the story in verses 39 to 42, you'll see the town 
you-know-what, brings transformation to the whole village. The people come to discover who Jesus is. She's no longer an outcast. Her dignity personally and within this community is restored. This is good news for all of us. Jesus is gracious with our past. Yes, it's true. Our church is full of law-abiding, family-valuing, people who are active in the PTA, who give to charities, who are generally good neighbors. But our church is also full of people who are overworked and overstressed, financially strapped, who yell at our kids, sometimes on the way to church, who are weighted down by anxiety or depression, who are struggling with addictions and relational brokenness, who are grieving significant losses or unfulfilled longings. I could go on and on. We are all dried up, either by what life has thrown at us or by our own poor decisions. And God longs to fill us with springs of water bubbling up to real life. He not only initiates this conversation with us, he offers to quench our thirst, to meet our longings regardless of our past. He wants to transform our lives, to create a new story, to move us from outcast to belonging. He wants us to experience such a level of healing in our lives that we drop our water pitchers, having found the living water. Friends, this is why City Church exists. Listen to our purpose statement. City Church is a Christ-centered community, inviting all people to grow in the transforming grace of Jesus and demonstrating the love of God to the world. Let me say just a word about those phrases. We're a Christ-centered community. Unapologetically, we have come to believe Jesus' way is the most compelling and fulfilling way there is to live. It's not hard to see why we are captivated by him and satisfied by the life he offers. And we share in this life together in a community. We find joy in not having to walk this road alone. Inviting all people into, to grow in the transforming grace of Jesus. I hope that whoever you meet from this community, even though we will not do it perfectly, will give some evidence of a changed life, of healing in relationships and from addictions, wisdom in parenting and vocational decisions, and that we do this in a way in our community the same way Jesus would, demonstrating his love to the world. But I want to conclude today by emphasizing this inviting all people. Because <laughs> today I want us to see the power of the two stories together. Because together, these two stories reveal something about the person of Jesus we might not otherwise know or, frankly, might not believe. And that is Jesus' invitation to real life is open to all. This is an open invitation. The Nicodemuses of this world and the Samaritan women of this world, men and women, the urbanite, and the townie, the person with Jewish heritage and the ethnically despised Samaritan. Jesus is an equal opportunity savior. He does not discriminate on the basis of gender, age, ethnicity, geography, religious background, personal history. Apparently, he's a sucker for all types of people. 
the powerful and the powerless, the overworked and the overlooked, the religious and the ragtag, the people with prestige and the people with the past, the winsome and the wounded, the Fulbright scholars and the full-on sinners, those who come seeking and those who need to be sought out. This is an open invitation. There is no one beyond the need of God's grace and there is no one beyond the reach of God's grace. Somebody say amen. amen. Which is astounding. This is so countercultural. Most groups have some kind of entrance requirements or prerequisites we have to meet in order to, to get in, but Jesus just flings the door wide open. Whether you are a nighttime question asker or a noonday parched well drawer, Jesus will be patient with your process and gracious with your past. He extends an open invitation to all. And so do we. If you're wondering what kind of people are invited to City Church, we got all types. We got Nicodemuses and Samaritan women. This is an open invitation. So if for whatever reason you've had some inclination to explore faith or re-explore a childhood faith, but you think you're not Jesus type, <laughs> I want to assure you today, Jesus' invitation to real life is available to all, even you, even me. Thank God. Let's pray. You are pretty remarkable. <laughs> it's no doubt people have been captivated by you for not 175 years, 2,000 years. Thank you. Thank you, thank you that you offer your life to all and that you are tender with us and gracious with us and patient with us and you take us seriously and you honor our background and our questions. There is no one like you. Fill us afresh with this living water that we may spill it over onto others around us, that they too may see who you are. We praise you for this open invitation in your name and always for the greater fame of your name. Amen.